Welcome to the Striking Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Hain. I'm a sports management and business administration student at the University of Iowa, and I'm here to discuss the influence of the most successful front offices in baseball history. In the business of baseball, trends in general management are rapidly changing. In the constant pursuit of creating the most perfect organization within a given budget, executives are constantly adapting and considering the motives of successful front offices while simultaneously asserting their own ideological preferences. Today, I examine one of the most consequential rebuilds in the history of baseball, the Chicago Cubs under the Theo Epstein regime. Evident by his transactions, Epstein displayed a preference for acquiring a young core of position players and major league ready pitching. In this episode, I discuss the reasoning behind Epstein's preferences, the lasting impacts of his motives on both the Chicago Cubs and the business of baseball, and I have on Cubs reporter Northside Bounds Greg Zumach to discuss all things related. There are several things that made the Cubs' early 2010s rebuild so significant. As an executive, Theo Epstein had so many unique preferences the first of which being drafting positional players with his first-round picks. In 2012, the Cubs held the sixth overall pick and selected outfielder Albert Almora. In 2013, the Cubs held the second overall pick to pick third baseman Chris Bryant. In 2014, the Cubs held the fourth overall pick and picked catcher Kyle Schwarber. Even in 2015, the Cubs held the ninth overall pick and selected second baseman Ian Happ. Theo Epstein's preferences for positional players was very obvious. This is mostly true for exclusively the first round, as most of these drafts held pitchers in the later rounds. Um, Clearly had an infatuation with filling positional needs. Epstein administration was also very early to aggressively approaching international free agent signings. In 2012, the Cubs signed starting pitcher Gerardo Concepcion, or $6 million over the course of five years. In 2012, the Cubs also signed outfielder Jorge Soler for $30 million over nine years, Eloy Jimenez for $2.8 million signing bonus, and shortstop Gleyber Torres for $1.7 million in 2013. All of the aforementioned players besides starting pitcher Gerardo Concepcion went on to be significant role players in the Cubs' rebuild. Albert Armora, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber were all effective pieces in the Cubs' 2016 World Series run, and even Ian Happ has progressed to be a gold glove and all-star outfielder for the Cubs currently. Jorge Soler was an integral part in the Cubs' 2015 run. Outfielder Eloy Jimenez and shortstop Gleyber Torres served to be effective trade pieces. The Cubs' approach to acquiring assets cannot be ignored. The smart spending that current Cubs president Jed Hoyer preaches, smart spending, was effectively utilized by the Cubs in this era. In 2011, after Theo Epstein took over, outfielder David DeJesus signed to the Cubs for $10 million over the course of two years. Outfielder Reed Johnson was signed for $1.15 million over the course of one season. Scott Feldman was signed for $6 million over the course of one season. Luis Valbuena was signed for $495,000 over the course of one season. And starting pitcher Jason Hamill was signed for $6 million over the course of one season. All of these players were effectively traded for assets that eventually benefited the championship team. 
The Cubs clearly had a preference for establishing a young core of position players through the first-round draft picks and trade preferences. In 2012, the Cubs traded starting pitcher Andrew Kashner to the San Diego Padres for first baseman Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo went on to become an integral part of the Cubs championship. By 2016, Rizzo was a three-time All-Star, a Gold Glove winner, and the center of the locker room. In 2014, the Cubs traded ace Jeff Samarja and fellow starting pitcher Jason Hamill to the Oakland A's for shortstop Addison Russell, starting pitcher Dan Straley, and outfielder Billy McKinney. Although none of these players had any major league experience, they were all highly touted prospects at the time. Epstein and his front office clearly had a preference for fringe major league ready guys. All of their draft picks, Albert Almora, Chris Bryant, Kyle Schwarber, Ian Happ, were established college players by the time they entered the draft, which is evident by the time it took for the players to achieve major league status. Anthony Rizzo, who played only a few games with the Padres before being traded in 2012, was a fringe major league player and a highly tied prospect. Shortstop Addison Russell was the number one prospect for the Oakland A's in 2013. Dan Straley, another highly touted prospect, and Billy McKinney as well. All of these guys were fringe MLB players, highly touted prospects, guys that are young enough to fit a timeline but haven't found major league success. On the other hand, Theo Upsing had a preference for acquiring MLB-ready pitching talent via trade. While this may be attributed to a lack of ability to develop pitching in the minor leagues and poor drafting, the team prioritized acquiring pitching through trade. In 2011, Epstein traded Sean Marshall, a reliever, to Cincinnati for starting pitcher Travis Wood, infielder Ronald Torres, and outfielder David Sapelt. In 2013, Epstein traded starting pitcher Scott Feldman and catcher Steve Collinger to the Baltimore Orioles for Jake Arrieta, Pedro Strope in cash. In 2013, Epstein also traded ace Matt Garza to Texas for third baseman Mike Olt, reliever Carl Edwards Jr., reliever Neil Ramirez, and reliever Justin Grimm. All of these guys were fringe MLB ready. While the Cubs finished 73 and 89 in 2014, there were evidently signs of growth by the team. This is where Epstein shines. He knows how to hit the gas. Following the 2014 season, Epstein led a massive ramp-up. He first signed manager Joe Madden for $25 million over the course of five years. He then traded reliever Arodis Viscano to Atlanta for second baseman Tommy Listella. He also traded starting pitcher Zach Godley to Arizona for catcher Miguel Montero. Both of these guys were established major league players that fill positional needs. He then signed starting pitcher Jason Hamill for $20 million over the course of two years, and the biggest signing of all, starting pitcher John Lester for $155 million over the course of six years. All of these guys turned into invaluable assets for the Cubs' 2016 run. Before the 2016 season, the Cubs led another massive ramp-up after a deep postseason run in 2015. The Cubs signed former Cardinals ace John Lackey for $32 million over the course of two years. Epstein then also signed second baseman and World Series MVP Ben Zobrist for $56 million over the course of four years. He then signed MVP candidate outfielder Jason Hayward for $184 million over the course of eight years. Epstein led a massive ramp-up and changed how MLB teams approach acquisitions when buying. 
2016 was Epstein's magnum opus. At the July deadline, Epstein traded first base prospect Dan Vogelback to Seattle for starting pitcher Mike Montgomery. He then also traded highly touted prospect second baseman Glaber Torres and reliever Adam Warren to the New York Yankees for closer Aroldis Chapman. He then also traded for reliever Joe Smith from the Angels. Epstein knows how to address needs with major league acquisitions. He knows how to go all in, and he changed how teams approach buying both in the offseason and during the deadline. My biggest takeaways from the Cubs rebuild in their uh, early 2010s, it was very evident the smart spending idea that we see now by the Chicago Cubs, uh, at least in some fashion, even with less transactions. Do you believe it's comparable to Jed Horry's version of smart spending that he's been so adamant about, even with additions like Luis Valbuena and going after young veteran players uh, in free agency to small deals, $1.1 million, $1.3 million. Do you think that, do you think that originated with that front office? I don't want to say originated. I think they, they proved how successful it could be, Uh, but, but there probably weren't the only ones. So when you talk about some of these smart, intelligent spending deals, there's an adage in baseball that effectively says there's no bad one year deal. Um, just because it doesn't tie you down effectively. So you could even see deals that extend into like one year, 20 million. I think the Braves might have done that with Josh Donaldson several years ago. It's like one year, 23 million. Those kind of things, it, it just, you know, it doesn't tie you down. And so you just get all that value in year one. It doesn't, uh, it reduces your long-term risk. I don't know that Hoyer-Epstein kind of as a combo for executives kind of, pioneered that deal. In fact, that's probably something if you want to go back a little bit further, still modern baseball, but like a little bit further, probably closer to like the Moneyball uh, era. And so the Oakland A's took these like low risk flyers, one year deals on guys and maximized their wins relative to their payroll. And they did it pretty well. What we've seen is that it's been 20 something years since Moneyball came out and they haven't won a World Series, right? So you have to build your team also in different ways. So through the draft, through international free agency, and then as long, you know, and and traditional free agency. And sometimes you just need to spend a lot of money. So I think those early Cubs teams of, you know, like 2013, 2014, something like that, um, they used these low-cost flip deals where they got like Scott Feldman. Luis Valbuena is a good example. We can come back to him in a second. And then, you know, these guys that they would just take, they would optimize a little bit, get get better, and then flip them in a few months. It worked really, really well. They got a lot of value out of that. And I do believe that the Cubs are hanging 2016 banners in part because of their success with that strategy. Right. Uh, and I forgot to say Jason Hamill, too, and clearly he had his impact on the 2016 season after they resigned him. Yep, great example on Jason Hamill because he he had done so well from an optimizing standpoint that then they brought him back. He really enjoyed his time there, 
and and he had an impact in 2015, 2016. So no, it's it's a great example. Right, and they were able to flip him for prospects initially. So, so they were in 2014. Right. Yeah, they, he was part of the. You know, it doesn't look as impressive in the back end now, but like the Jason Samarja and Hamill both went for Addison Russell uh, and Billy McKinney too. So like, and you know, it, obviously it doesn't look great now, but uh, but it had a big impact in 2015, 2016. Right. Um, and in that same space, in that same time period, the Cubs were very adamant about international prospects. Uh, the first one I remember is Gerardo, Gerardo Concepcion. And then going into Jorge Soler and Gleyber Torres, eventually Eloy Jimenez. Do you believe that they were innovators in this space, especially for the time? They were at the, I, I don't know, innovators. They, well, yeah, you know what? That's actually not a bad term for it. Because, so in 2013, um, new rules came out that effectively capped the amount that you could spend in, in international free agency. But it, what it did is it, it limited you to, to overspend on a one-year basis, and then you were restricted the next year. Right. So we saw in 2013 the Cubs and a, and a couple other teams exploit that. They went out there. They traded for more money. They got, um, they got Eloy and Glaber and, and several other guys in 2013, and then were restricted in 2014. And so, like... Then it allowed him to go back in 2015. They were innovators. They pushed the boundaries in that in those years. What is interesting, they had a ton of success there. What is interesting is that then the rules changed after baseball looked at that and found like, oof, yeah, that we can't be allowing this. It's just alternating these big market teams like every other year just going nuts. So what they did is they capped teams after that two years of being capped if you go over. And so that kind of changed the calculation. And then the Cubs did it again in 2015, and then we're out in 16, 17. The problem is, is that, and then baseball totally changed it to the point that it was like, there's no, <laughs> there's nothing beyond that. You cannot go beyond it. Absolutely. That decision to go back to that afterwards, I'm not sure it was a great idea. I think it was fine. You pushed it. You pushed the boundaries once. It worked really well. But then after that is is a little bit more questionable, to be honest. And 2015 looks okay, but it doesn't look as strong as it as it used to. Do you think we'll see another deal that was like Jorge Soler's $30 million over nine years? So no, because baseball's actually capped that. Um, that. That can't happen anymore. So that type of deal isn't allowed anymore, unfortunately. We saw like Juan Mancada... Jorge Soler, Yasel Puig got these massive deals, and then baseball closed that loophole. And so even in 2017, offseason when Shohei Otani signed, he was restricted to just a couple million, which, I mean, now kind of looks almost laughable, right? Because he's just an absolute stud. Um, so we, don't, we won't likely see too many of those deals, and I'm guessing that's a loophole that baseball doesn't want to open up again. Right, okay. I'm trying to think back right now. Uh, Luis Roberts' contract... Yeah, uh, with the White Sox that was signed mm -hmm. in 2017. Am I right? Somewhere else. I wanted to say 2016. Maybe I'm wrong on that. It was a pre-arbitration extension that he signed. Oh so, yeah, so he okay. did do that. You're right. Um, so he was a free agent at the beginning of 2017, but then he signed earlier that year. I'm fairly sure that like after that season is when baseball closed that loophole. But you're right, Luis Robert did. He was another mega contract. 
20, 30 million, something like that. And, and looks like he's been pretty successful. So do you he think- then signed an extension after. Yep. Right. So you think we'll see a deal like that where it's high AAV for maybe one year coming in or whatever that cap is for an international free agent and then extending them pre-arbitration uh, while they hit arbitration? I think the best example is Shohei Otani in which you get that one-year bonus, but then you're still kind of beholden to the arbitration system. Right. And then what was being discussed for the past few years is will the Angels actually just try to extend him? Baseball has said they came out around the Shohei Otani deal or it's been reported that they were contacting teams effectively saying, hey, yeah, that's fine. You offer Otani the, the signing bonus, that's fine, but like, don't turn around two months later and then give him $100 million. Like, we are going to view that as trying to work around the system. So there were several years later um, and now, you know, but, but I think had, if they had extended him in year three or something, I don't think anybody would have looked at that and been like, oh, that's kind of skirting the system. So in 2012, the Cubs drafted Albert Omora, uh, mm-hmm. position player, 2013, Chris Bryant, position player, and 2014, position player, Kyle Schwarber. Yep. Uh, 2015 even, and that wasn't relevant for that time period uh, with, mm-hmm. with the World Series, but another position player. Uh, what do you think led to this p- preference for position player early in the first round? You know, there's there was a lot of talk, like right after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, that, you know, every team that wins the World Series, the executives take a victory lap, which is totally justified. But then all there's a lot of reports out there about the storytelling behind the scene, there was, I believe, a book written about it called like The Cubs Way, maybe by Tom Verducci, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And they, that's a big narrative in, in a lot of this. I don't want to attribute that just to Verducci, but like a lot of individuals uh, who wrote about it is, hey, the Cubs drafted hitting, bought pitching. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily all correct, but like it kind of is, right? I mean... You're talking about 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, all years. And if we if they had a pick in 2016, there's a pretty good chance they would have t- taken another hitter, right? Like, it was working so well. And so, like, that's not super surprising. That doesn't mean that the Cubs were saying, like, pedal to the metal, we're only taking position players. They really did like Mark Appel. Um, and I think they were somewhat interested in John Gray in 2013. So in 2013, that was the big year of, like, there's three big prospects, Cubs are drafting second. Any of the three are going to be great. Um, that didn't end up being the case, but like that's how teams viewed it. And so I think if if Chris Bryant had gone first, or even um, I mean, even if John Gray had gone first, there's a pretty good chance that Mark Appel would have been a Cub. Who knows what would have happened? But obviously the Cubs aren't looking back on that one disappointedly. There was a view that these players are safer. And if you go back and you look at like historical, how these players based on their demographics have succeeded. So we're, when we say demographics, we basically break it down into the big four. High school hitters, college hitters, high school pitchers, college pitchers. You can break it down a bunch of different ways beyond that based on positions and stuff. But like just looking at it generally, one of the safest demographics is college hitters, especially in the first round. The chances that you're gonna get a major leaguer there is really high. And you don't have to worry about, like, what happens in year four if this guy gets Tommy John. Um, Not that players don't get hurt, but it's just it's less of a calculus in there. And so, yeah, I mean, the Cubs, look, we're like, hey, we are starting from nothing, effectively. The Cubs 
had Javi Baez, they had Wilson Contreras, but they didn't know what they had in Wilson Contreras. It wasn't the Wilson that we know now. And then that was it, effectively. Like there were like Dan Vogelbach and there were a couple other guys in there, but but it was a pretty barren system and they didn't have a lot to even trade for at the major league level. So if you're starting from the ground up, and that is what they did, they just took a bunch of guys that were like, well, this guy is going to make it to the majors and we're going to draft him in the top 10. He's going to make it to the majors and then we'll just supplement around there. And we saw that they, they were really successful with that. And then the flipping strategy that we talked about and, when the, when the time came, you can't say that the Cubs weren't willing to go all in for things. They went all in for Lester, Hayward. Um, they did a big deal down for Zobrist. And then they went all in, like him or hate him or whatever. But, I mean, all in on a Chapman deal. That was a, that was a if not now, when, was Theo Epstein's quote. So, um, yeah, they, they built steadily through the, thing, the methods that you were talking about. And then when they needed to, they just pushed all their chips in. And it worked. Okay, so when I look, I look at those drafts, I see a contributing major league player in the first round every time, and then I and then look nothing. rounds two through five, and there, there's a couple of hits, but mostly for other teams. Paul Blackburn, uh, mm-hmm. Rob Sestrisny wasn't effective as a Cub, um, right. and then there were some later hits with Justin Steele and Dylan Cease in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you believe that the player development system uh, wasn't on par with other franchises at the time? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think they they viewed themselves internally. This is just my conjecture and not from like comments within the system or anything. Right. But if I'm, yeah, if I'm kind of making a conjecture, I think they viewed themselves higher internally than than it probably was true. The Cubs of that era effectively said we're going to draft these guys and and this has been speculated by other people there was a disconnect between the scouting system and the player development system and they weren't on the same page and so the scouts are effectively and that creates resentment it creates a lot of frustration when the scouts are saying we are giving you the players and the player development staff is saying these are not the players that, <laughs> that we can work with i'm sure it wasn't that contentious and I'm sure the player development system looked at these players like, oh, yeah, okay, let, let's let's go. Right. But that doesn't mean that they were the players now where, and I don't think this is like off the record. This isn't off the record. I would never talk about off the record things. But this is, this is comments that I, I believe have been reported elsewhere that the scouting and the player development teams feel like they're more on the same page. That doesn't mean they're like perfectly married, this is it, but... For instance, I know that the player development staff would get consulted about draft targets. Um, and so certain hitting individuals, pitching inf- individuals within the system, coaches would get calls of like, hey, we're looking at this guy, we're debating on this, what would you do with this ring? Like, what, you know, like, what do you, how do you view this player? So I know that stuff's happening a little bit more, not that it wasn't happening before, but I think there's a, a more concerted effort. But the, from the player development side, I think they just... I think it was very different. I think there were a handful of organizations who were starting to really push the boundaries on that when data was starting to be a little bit more useful. And the Cubs were very good at the major league level for game planning. They didn't have the ability, like a lot of teams, to take a guy and say, this is what you should do optimally based on your pitch shape or whatever. That was really just an area that kind of changed dramatically right around 2016-2017. Do 
do believe that that their preference for acquiring pitching through trading and essentially MLB ready pitching, whether it be Jake Arrieta or Pedro Strope, where they haven't found success at the major league level, do you believe that's credible to their inability to develop pitching? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they had to. I, I don't know that I would use the Arietta example. I, I, I see where you're coming from on that. Um, and the reason being is that in 2013, the Cubs were, I mean, they were bottoming out. Uh, and there was definitely a view of like, well, we just flipped all these guys. Let, let's take some chances at the major league level. Um, and the next year they got, uh, or right around the, they, they picked up Kyle Hendricks, um, you know, that was in 2012, and then he was up in 2014. There was still a period of, like, let's take a chance on a bunch of guys and just see what sticks. I don't think they realized that they needed to pivot quickly enough. Like, so in 20, 2013, when they took Jake Arrieta, they only had two drafts with that group. So I don't think they viewed it as, like, oh, no, like, our pitching isn't our pitching development isn't working. There probably wasn't enough time then to evaluate it 2016, 2017 is probably when they should have realized, oh, we're like four years into this and we're not having as much success as we thought. Um, But again, that's just me speculating on the outside. Where I do think that they had to push a lot of chips in was around that 2016, 2017 time. Um, And a lot of it manifested even later. They had downstream repercussions even 2019. So in 2016, they had to give John Lackey a big deal, uh, relatively. And, and burn through a, a second or third round draft pick because of it, that, that's, that's rough. Um, you lose a lot of value there. Uh, and Lackey was very good, and there's a big reason he helped the Cubs win the World Series. The Quintana deal is probably the biggest example of like, oh, they needed to really push a lot of chips in. Yeah. And those kind of deals look, look a lot harder. If the Cubs were doing what they're doing now where, let's say they had – like a Keegan Thompson, I don't even want to say Justin Steele, who's very good in like 2.8 wins and awesome um, wins above replacement. But like, let's say they had a Keegan Thompson, a guy could just spot starter, uh, come in, but like looks good on the pen, can get, you know, like that's a ton of value there. They did not have that back then. They had to trade for that. That was, that was Mike Montgomery they had to trade for him because of that situation. So yeah, it it was rough. You know, like they did really well on certain things. And there's a reason that I can walk around in a 2016 World Series champion shirt. But it's also like, ooh, you know, I, it there were issues where the Cubs had even identified like, all right, we need to find pitching. That was what Theo Epstein wrote on the, on the whiteboard in the front office. So, yeah, it, good and bad. You talked about needing to make a pivot. Uh, and I, I look at the 2014-2015 offseason, and it, it's very obvious. They hired Joe Madden. They traded for Tommy Listello. They traded for Miguel Montero. They, again, signed Jason Hamill uh, mm-hmm. to a 10 mil AAV deal. They got Jen Lester. They got Jason Mott. They got David Ross. Dexter Fowler is a really good trade. Traded for Dexter Fowler. Do you think uh, it was what led to that pivot, do you believe? Well, okay, so a couple of things. Like, post end of 2014 season, if I'm just looking at it, it's totally rejuvenated. Javi Baez comes up, and you can see what he still needs to work on, but, like, the the tools are there. Jorge Soler, I think we forget how incredible he was when he was on the field in the minor leagues. 
entering the 2015 season, there was like honest discussion within Cubs message boards and all that about like who's going to have a 20 a better 2015 season rookie year, Soler or Bryant. I mean, that's like telling you the extent of like, oh, people were split on that. Right. So, I mean, like those guys, Baez, um, Alcantara, actually, who didn't really pan out, but he was another kind of exciting, you know, maybe he could be a bench guy, maybe he could be a little bit more. And then Soler, those three, and Hendricks, all came up in, at the end of 2014 season. That team all of a sudden is winning more games. There's youth, there's excitement. And... There was an article a few years ago um, with the OFC, I think it was right after the World Series in 2016, where, they, where he was talking about having to sell John Lester on the deal. And he used the example of the Royals, who had just gone back-to-back World Series. Right. I guess it was only the one, because then they did it in 2015. So prior to that year, sorry. Um, but they had just gone to the World Series. Game seven is unbelievable. And he said, look, like this is this is what happens when you surround a group of young talent that's about to be there with a couple, you know, bigger free agents, a couple impact arms. I sold John Lester on it. They, they realized that entering 2015, I don't know that a lot of people thought Addison Russell is going to be up so early, but Soler, Bryant, they should all be up there fairly soon. Um, the other parts of the group were were solid, you know, and then Arietta had an absolutely amazing 2014 season, right. taking a no-hitter into the eighth inning in Fenway. I mean, it was where it's like, okay, if we surround this, maybe this is a thing already. Um, and so I, it was a correct decision to pivot, and Joe Madden, while he gets some flack for later on stuff, I think he was the perfect manager at the time, and hey, it all worked out. You already spoke on this a little bit, but how impactful is adding veteran pieces and establishing a winning culture around young players. I mean, it's huge. So like everybody dreams of this, not everyone, but like a lot of people dream about taking this young core and they all grew up together and they all play together and that's, and you know, just supplementing from within. It's the, Baseball America puts this out like every year. It's this five years down their own projection of what the roster will look like. And it's only from internal people. So you've got all these guys that are, maybe they're not even going to make the majors, but now they're the fifth starter, you know, in this theoretical rotation. And those are just fantasies because that's never going to work. It's so important to take guys from other organizations for a few different reasons. One, just for talent, right? Like you add John Lester to that 2015 group, that's so much better. Like he's a legitimate like frontline starter at that time on a hall of fame track. Like you add him on, then it takes all the pressure off Arietta, who no one knew who was going to go supernova. Like he was already very good, but he was next to level. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, unbelievable Cy Young season. That second half is just ridiculous. So you, you add all that talent that's already good. And then, too, you bring these guys in from either winning organizations or they've got winning qualities to them that just kind of mesh. Craig Breslow, the Cubs VP of Pitching and an assistant general manager, did a podcast a while back. It wasn't necessarily about the Cubs. It was about his background. And he talked about how it's really hard to find that perfect mesh. But he said the 2013 Boston Red Sox were a great example of that in which it just everything clicked. Those guys should not have been as good as they were, but everything worked from a clubhouse standpoint. It's always trying to find that right fit. 
but regardless, I, it just you, you need to add those type of players to it, add talent, add that mix in the clubhouse, and then you know you just hope the ingredients all work together. I look at teams now like the Detroit Tigers, who yep. after a fringe wild card year in 2021 went out and added Eduardo Rodriguez and Javi Baez and even Andrew Chafin, who was spectacular yep. the season before. And I wonder, is the Cubs model a model for success? You know, not really, because baseball changes so quickly. You have to have the internal development structure. Like, there's elements of it. There's elements of the build from within, supplement at the right time, and then really go all in if you want to. Like, I, I mean, I think that is reasonable, but that's also like my, like the Padres have done that. Um, they built up a really, really strong farm system. And then, and they, theirs is much more extreme, but they, it's like pedal to the metal. Like, they're going all in all the time. Right. And so it's a little bit more extreme, but like, I think a lot of teams do that. I don't know if the Cubs strategy is like super trend, you know, it, it's unique. I, I, I don't, I don't think it's unique. I think a lot of those bigger organizations are doing it, but it certainly works if, if you do it right. Jed Hoyer said this before, you just have to be right. Like you just have to make the right calls. You could push all the buttons that look amazing in the off season, win the off season, and then you get into the year and it just doesn't work right. The Tigers, I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez has had um, some public battles that, that he's been dealing with from a mental health standpoint. So I don't really want to speculate on that too much. Like Javi Baez, just, it didn't really click there his first year. Chafin was great. Um, and, and so like you could see the elements of what they were trying to do with Torkelson and Green. It doesn't help that the Tigers invested heavily in pitching and they're almost all injured. Like they're almost all, it's really just bad luck, mostly. And so, you know, I don't know. I I think it was a similar type of strategy, but it's, they just haven't had the immediate success, which shows you how critical it is for fans to appreciate what happened in 2015, 2016, because that is no guarantee that that works. Like no guarantee. It just, it did and, and it's fine. And this show, this podcast, is all about finding trends within the most successful front offices in baseball. And I'm wondering, do you think the Cubs were innovators as far as adding veteran pieces, adding winning pieces, and generating winning culture? Innovative is so hard. They were very successful at it. Um, they, They maximized that. There's very few individuals that you can look at that were bigger signings in, in the Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer era that were veterans that didn't have publicly reported a lot of benefit in the clubhouse. There's very few. I, I actually, I'm trying to think of one, to be honest. John Lackey is gruff and is a veteran, but people really liked him in the clubhouse. John Lester is was transformative. Jason Hayward, you know, unfortunately, the, it, the contract looks bad now, but... There has never been a single issue with him. He's a, a res, model citizen and was a phenomenal teammate in Chicago. Ben Zobrist was very strong as well. So innovative is, is so hard to tell because I think a lot of teams were trying to do that exact strategy. Uh, but the Cubs really, really nailed it. Miggy Montero was really good for a while. David Ross, you know. Um, so those those veterans were really, really excellent picks. And I... I've, Sure, there's an example out there, but I have a hard time thinking of one who didn't work. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Striking Gold Podcast. I'm Mason Hain. Thank you to Greg Zumach for coming on to the podcast. It was a pleasure. And I hope you like listening to me talk about trends as much as I like to talk about them.